Hey guys, this is uh, Gatsad's second show of the new year. Last week, I had a professor from Dartmouth, a historian of happiness. Today, I've got the wonderful Heather McDonald, whom I've seen many, many times on Tucker Carlson. I don't think I'll ever catch up to the number of appearances that you've had on the show. I've only been there once. How are you doing, Heather? I'm great, but uh, really, we're all sort of, I don't know, proselytizers or, or at the mercy of uh, TV shows, you know, you have no control over whether you go on or not. And people always say, oh, I see you there, but read my writing instead. You know, that I can control. I can't control TV appearances. I'm so. going to come to your writing right now. So for those of you viewers who don't know Heather, she is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor uh, of the Institute's City Journal. Uh, by training, she is an attorney and she is a New York Times bestselling author. Let me uh, mention her books. I think two of which are anthologies, The Burden of Bad Ideas, How Modern Intellectuals Misshape Our Society. That is very relevant to my own book, The Parasitic Mind. Are Cops Racist? I think uh, that's another anthology. The Immigration Solution, co-authored with Victor Davis Hanson and Steve Malenga. And then more recently, in the last few years, The War on Cops, How the New Attack on Law and Order Makes Everyone Less Safe. And finally, in 2018, another book that I address uh, in my own work on diversity, inclusion, and equity, The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Did I cover everything, Heather? That's more than enough. <laughs> and here are the books which you were kind... Well, this one you were kind enough to just send me. I just got it. haven't started reading it. But this one I had gotten a while ago. Go out, people, and get these books. So I thought we'd start with uh, a, a mystery that I'm having a hard time cracking. And maybe with your uh, training as a criminal... Uh, well, I don't know if you're a criminal lawyer, but as a lawyer, you might help me. So Malik Faisal Akram, a... British national, you know, he's he's like the he's you know he's in the inner circle of the Queen. Uh, took hostages at a Texas synagogue because he wanted to have his sister in faith, who is in prison because of her links to Al Qaeda. He so this has just happened a few days ago. Now the FBI and their collective wisdom is trying to identify. What might be the motive behind why he did it? Do you think you might be able to help us with that one, Heather? <laughs> Going to law school doesn't really help you uh, identify that. It's a question of whether you are participating in the national narrative uh, that says that the only threat of violence in this country comes from so-called white supremacists and any, any other type of violence perpetrated by any other type of group uh, remains a complete mystery. Uh, so we're, we're living a whole set of fictions in the United States today. Uh, the primary one is, again, is that white supremacy is the big terror threat uh, and, and the source of violence. Let, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this. Do you, so I, mean, I talk about all this in, in my own book where I talk about ostrich parasitic syndrome, right? The, the metaphor of the ostrich burying their head. It's parasitic thinking. It gets you to engage in all sorts of maladaptive behaviors. Do you think that deep down in the recesses of their minds, the folks who promulgate this nonsense, when they lay down on their bed to sleep, have they deluded themselves enough that they actually believe that nonsense? Or do you think that deep down they know it's BS, but they just have to promulgate the narrative? 
It's a question I ask myself all the time, and I don't know how one would possibly answer it unless one had some extraordinarily deep and confidential conversation with these people. It is the puzzle. I ask it all the time about university professors and university presidents who go around claiming that their own institution is racist even though they know that they are practicing extraordinarily large racial preferences in favor of blacks and Hispanics. Any university president should know that there's not a single academic faculty search where the overriding goal is not to hire or interview, hire and promote as many females and blacks and Hispanics as possible. And yet they go around claiming uh, that their institutions and, and implicitly blaming their colleagues for racism. And I ask myself all the time, do they really believe that? They are holding two mutually exclusive propositions uh, or, or at least one of them is explicit, the other is implicit. One is that we're biased, the other is look at the facts. We are twisting ourselves into knots to give meaning to what is the reality in America today, which is black privilege. I don't know. I also don't know, you know what they think about the absolutely devastating attack on meritocratic standards. Do they really not acknowledge that by admitting any group, in this case overwhelmingly at blacks, under a lower academic standard, but the, the results would be the same if you, if you brought in females under a lower academic standard, do they really not know that blacks end up at the bottom of their classes and yet they claim that everything is fine? So, so the question of what people really think and really know is the biggest puzzle. What do you think? Yeah, um, thank you for asking because I was, as you were speaking, and of course I was focused on every syllable you were uttering, I, I thought of the following, and so thank you for asking the question because I'm, I'm going to try to offer an answer. Yeah. So I think it's a bit of both. I think there's one group of people who are sufficiently parasitized by bad ideas, who are low, you know, they're cognitive misers. So I don't need to really worry about looking at what the epidemiological reality about how many cops kill black men that are, who are unarmed. I just know that LeBron James told me that there is a perpetual daily genocide of black people in the US. That's good enough for me. Barack Obama and George Bush told me that Islam is a religion of peace. They are our presidents. That's good enough for me. So there is, I think, one group of folks who are cognitive misers, who are willing to use simplifying heuristics to kind of understand the world. And therefore, they genuinely believe that if only because they are lazy to, to, know, to know any better. I think the other group of people, deep down in the recesses of their mind, the ideologues, the demagogues, do know that they are BSing. But, you know, there's a there's a evolutionary biologist, very famous evolutionary biologist by the name of Robert Trivers, who some have argued is the greatest uh, Darwinist since Darwin himself. He's still alive today. And he developed a theory regarding the evolution of self-deception. Why is it that people are so adept at self-deceiving? And he argued that it's because when you and I are having an exchange, I'm trying to influence you and manipulate you in a way that gets you to do the things that I want you to do. But typically, if I am being duplicitous, I will let off certain cues 
of duplicity which you might be able to pick up in me. Now, the only way to shut off those cues is for me to first believe my own lie. By believing my own lie, by self-deceiving, I can then better deceive you, right? Uh, and so I think probably the second group, the ideologues, probably convince themselves that what they are saying is true. What, what do you think of these this dichotomy? Well, one reaction I have is uh, that the economic model of rational man, and this has been pointed out many times already, is sadly uh, simplistic, if not outright false, that the human mind is so much more complicated than that. Uh, I guess you can always invoke some sort of higher rationality, this sort of evolutionary rationality that everything ultimately points us towards a end of, of survival. But uh, the complexity of truth and falsehood that go into human existence really does make one despair a little bit about whether in the marketplace of ideas, truth will win out. And I would just throw out another example that uh, does not move us any closer to answering this question. Uh, but we are in a world now where we are hiring by the irrelevancies of sex and race. And that means that the people who are hired that happen to be of the favored categories who are qualified. And of course, there are thousands of competitively qualified blacks uh, who now operate under the stigma and the pall of possibly being racial preference beneficiaries. It hurts them. But we are also hiring people who are not qualified, that do not have the academic skills uh, and and that is an inevitability given what the yawning academic skills gap is in this country. It's something that is never talked about, that people are clueless as to its size. But there are hires that are just patently inferior. And one of them is a New York Times uh, arts critic, movie critic named Wesley. I think his last name is Morris. He recently had a piece in the New York Times in honor of the uh, actor Sidney Poitier, who died recently, this piece was so poorly written. It, it was barely grammatical. The usage problems were ubiquitous. The logic problems were ubiquitous. And I asked myself at the time, those New York Times critics from previous generations who were hired based on their writing skills, what do they think when they read Wesley Morris? Is it is it galling to them that they are now sharing time space with somebody who clearly cannot write? I think the same thing about lawyers. When every law firm, uh, elite law firm in the United States is now hiring based on racial preferences, Again, I am not saying that there are no competitively qualified black law graduates. There are. But the push for proportional diversity, proportional representation, given the academic skills gap, means that some share of those black hires are way underqualified compared to their peers. And the results speak for themselves because 
they end up not making partner. What do those competitively qualified lawyers think when they see the work product of their racial preference peers? And I don't know. And I think you're right. There's it's a it's a double consciousness. I think that the mind can can hold two contrary propositions at the same time, which is an empirical awareness of lack of qualifications at the same time, a continuing belief that the only thing that is holding back proportional representation throughout the United States is not the behavior gap. It's not the skills gap, but it's a, it's white racism. But, but I hope, I hope that, you know, all those highly qualified, let's say at the new Republic or the New York times, you know, white Jewish intellectuals, are galled or those those professors who are very left wing and who have mediocre colleagues i hope it burns them up inside <laughs> because because they are the architects right. of the deterioration and the pulling down of western civilization over the long run which is what we are heading towards yeah i hear you uh i thought of a third group uh, i mentioned two possibilities I think the third one is one that I covered uh, in The Parasitic Mind. That's the ideologues who actually know that they are lying, but they use a consequentialist ethics, which basically argues that the lie, it's, this, it's, the, it's the platonic noble lie, right? So it's okay to lie for a greater cause, right? Whereas what I argue, and I think in, 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 in having seen, you know, how you become incensed when you, you know, when you appear on one of those shows, I, I see your honey badger attitude. I think some of us are deontologically driven when it comes to the truth, meaning, and as I always remind people in, in all sorts of venues, when, you know, we're all at times deontological where there is an absolute, you know, standard that you have to abide by. And at times we're consequentialist. That I, I joke that if you want to have a harmonious marriage, if your spouse asks you whether they look fat in those jeans, you better put on your consequentialist hat and say, of course you don't, you look gorgeous, right? So we all have the ability to navigate through both both ethical systems, that's part of life. But when it comes to the truth with a capital T, then you have to be deontologically inclined, meaning that I never sacrifice a millimeter of truth in the service of some other goal. And so that brings me to, to another point, which is, uh, once you are consequentialist when it comes to the truth, then you are impervious to data that proves your position to be false, right? Be so example, in your universities, we keep hearing that, you know, you need to be better ally to women because, you know, when women go to Western universities, it's akin to them, you know, being in Raqqa under under ISIS uh, occupation. It's the same as if they were going to school Malala with the Taliban, Right. Now, I shared data many, several years ago from the United States government that looked at, and maybe you're aware of this data or not, Heather, and if you're not, it's going to blow your mind. So across uh, all levels of educational attainment, so associate's degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and doctorate, so four levels of educational attainment, and across five racial categories, you know, Hispanic, black, white, whatever, uh, indigenous, whatever it is, okay? 
And so there are 20 cells basically. And each of the cells, they're simply calculating the proportion of men to women who've graduated in that cell. So associates degree indigenous, is, it, is there more men or more women? So there are basically 20 cells. So if the isis Raqqa argument that women are victimized by the patriarchy in universities is true, the 20 out of the 20 cells would have more men than women. Can you guess what the data shows? Can you take a number? So how many of the cells do women outnumber men? And these are divided by subject area, like economics. I mean, you could philosophy. do it that. You could do it that. But in this one, it's aggregated. So it just, it's just, so it's, it, it doesn't do that breakup. It just says master's, bachelor's, associate, doctorate across five racial categories. Just tell me for each of those 20 cells, how many of the cells do women outnumber men? Remember, if men outnumber women 20 out of 20, that would be a manifestation of grotesque patriarchy. What does the actual data show? I don't mean to put you on the spot. Just give any number. No, 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 I, I would also say one distinction is, is this new graduates, in which case women way, way predominate, or is it accumulation? So it's people that, that got their PhDs and were hired uh, 20 years ago. I think the data was from like maybe five years ago. But it, it was... It was most recent, like recently graduated in the last year, if I remember correctly. So it refers to current graduates. If yes. it's referring to current graduates, I, I would think there's very few fields where women are not predominant. Exactly. Well, as a matter of fact, you're exactly right. 20 out of 20 cells, women outnumbered men. So now let's, so one, one victimhood narrative, and I receive all the emails at my, from the university telling me I need to be a better ally. So one narrative is that, you know, it's, it's just really, it's, it's, it's difficult for women to exist in university settings, given the endemic sexism that exists. The reality is that it is, it, you couldn't come up with data that was more contrary, that falsified the narrative any better. So I thought at first, maybe naively, oh, if I get data that disproves the narrative, then, hey, I'm winning. Dr. Sadis King, it turns out that the data didn't really matter. So how can we get to people, Heather? And I mean, you know this because you've collected the data for the police stuff and so on, but yeah. people are impervious to data. I don't know. I mean, literally, I do not know what else remains. If, if, if reason and facts or discourse, and I'm enough of a product of 1970s deconstructionist <laughs> education that it's weird. I, I act as if I believe in truth. I do. I mean, I'm absolutely confident in my reading of the data on police shootings and crime and police activity and crime and, and you know, racial disparities there. Nevertheless, there's another side of me that also relativizes things, problematizes things, and, and, and is going to say, well, my version of the truth and theirs. But, but if you cannot persuade somebody with facts, the only other thing is violence. I really, I don't see a middle ground uh, unless it's just a sort of a constant, wearying, just life-sapping struggle against error that stops just short of people beating each other up. But it seems to me that really you, your choices are either you persuade by force or you persuade by facts. And if the facts don't work, 
one one really just despairs. I you know it's the same thing as you as you say with the police. I mean it, it the the numbers of blacks shot by the police are minute compared to the number of blacks killed by blacks. That police are not the problem in the black community. They're not. The police are the solution in the black community. And yet these Black Lives Matter activists will literally never, ever talk about the dozens of black children who were killed every year. And I mean one-month-olds, one-year-olds, three-year-olds, five-year-olds, black children shot in the head in their strollers, in their backyards at barbecues by other black criminals. They will never be mentioned by Black Lives Matter activists because to do so means implicitly at least you have to acknowledge black crime and that is utterly taboo as far as females in universities if i could this is not your point but if i could just like speak from like uh, uh, the standpoint feminist standpoint epistemology you know i've got my female worldview here it is so bs i graduated from college in 1978, so I'm considerably older than you are. I have never been discriminated against in my life, ever. To the contrary, I have been the beneficiary of hateful gender preferences, inevitably, without a question. I'm sure I've been put on panels or asked to speak because they needed a female. In fact, once I was asked to be on some Fox Nation show, which is kind of their web-based thing, on interest rates. And I said to the producer, who was female herself, why are you asking me? This is, I know nothing about interest rates and macroeconomics. And I said, are, are you going to me because I'm a female and you need your gender quota? And she admitted yes. And I'm sure that's happened all the time. It is ridiculous. I'm sure the, the people who are committed to the to the rape culture narrative, they can always come back and say, oh yes, you know, females may predominate in every single field, but it would be much better without rape culture. Uh, so they can always say, yeah. you know, whatever the data shows that it's it, it takes into account uh, misogyny and whatnot, but, but it's just preposterous. And, and let's just face it, Women run universities, and that's why we have the collapse of reason. Yeah. Well, I uh, I was going to add. So, so in, in my in my last point, I said, well, you know, the ideologues are impervious to falsification. If you give them data, they'll just ignore it. So, I'm going to now add a fourth grotesque group. Now, this is the group that will receive the falsification data and use it in support of their opposing position. So, let me explain how. How, how insane that is. Uh, so I'll give two examples, both of which I, I discuss in The Parasitic Mind. Uh, Jewish doctoral student at Hebrew University decides to write a paper to examine the endemic rape of Palestinian women by IDF soldiers, Israeli Defense Force soldiers, right? Because, you know, of course, it's important to self-flagellate. So we are evil. We're bad Jews. Self-flagellate. Okay. So then she goes out and does the research, and to her utter dismay at first, she realizes that there isn't a single documented case of rape by an IDF soldier on a Palestinian woman. Now, you would think that, wow, that's a strong falsification of her hypothesis. 
Oh no, Heather. Do you know how she explained it? Uh, that it's proof that they're still evil. Have you have you heard that explanation before? No. Uh, uh, the, the I, I don't think your mind could be diabolical enough to come up with it. But let's see if you can. Go for it. Uh, that well, they could they could say that women are not reporting it, or they could say that it's still enough of a threat that women are scared of it, or that somehow they they're putting up the Palestinians to rape them. Um, yeah, all good attempts, but it's a lot more sorry. grotesque than that. Uh, <laughs> the fact that an Israeli soldier never raped a Palestinian woman demonstrates to you how much he is othering that vile Palestinian woman. She's not good enough oh to rape her. So think about <laughs> it for a second. So it, exactly. So if they had, if she had found rape, then of course it would demonstrate that they're evil because rape is evil and they're evil. If she finds that they are the exact opposite, they've never raped, it shows how disgustingly racist they are that they don't even look at these women as worthy of rape. So all roads lead to you being disgusting. Second example, uh, not quite as shocking, but in the same uh, vein of uh, insane logic, quote logic. Uh, a Canadian student at Queen's University in Ontario wants to demonstrate that Canada is a endemically Islamophobic culture. And therefore, she decides to don a hijab, I think it was for 18 days, so that she could document how, you know, people are going to be spitting on her and, you know, you know, slapping her and who knows, okay, calling her names. <laughs> After 18 days, she concludes that the people were unbelievably polite kind, respectful, gentle. What did she conclude? Can you now, can you take a shot at this one? Maybe, maybe Professor Saad will still pass you from the course. Go. <laughs> well, they are uh, hiding their Islamophobic uh, reactions. Very good. Uh, Thank they, they are so uh, Islamophobic, but it's latent. So you have to overcompensate for it by being overtly kind. So had they been Islamophobic, they're Islamophobic. If they're opposite of Islamophobic, they're Islamophobic. All roads lead to bigotry. So when you get to that level of departure from reason, should we just all go surfing or can we still redress the ship of reason? Or are we doomed? Well, okay, so here's... My mind is always tends to sort of want to take the other side. And I ask myself... Does the left say the same about us? Because I'm, I'm reluctant to believe what looks to me to be the case, which is that there is a difference in attention to facts and reason between, I don't know what category you will accept being put into if you will accept being called a conservative or whatnot, but we know that there's the left, call them progressives, left, whatever, whatever we're... We're not that, so I don't know what category we want to put ourselves into, but would the left say the same about us? Do they have these conversations? I know that, you know, one of the enduring tropes on the right, and it, I talk about it all the time, is double standards. You know, we look at the, at in here in the United States, at Democrats, far left, whatever, and see just a complete... Uh, lack of consistency in, in what they get mad about. Do they say the same about us or not? If not, maybe what they say about us is 
simply racist, racist, exactly. racist, sexist, sexist, sexist. So they really don't accuse us of these t- types of blind spots because, as I say, it would be it would be unusual if we were immune to what may be baked in failures of reasoning in the human mind. So I'll answer it in two ways. I, I, you raise a, you raise a great point. I uh, look. I think anybody, irrespective of where they stand on which political aisle, which side of the political aisle could be prone to faulty thinking, to, to parasitize thinking. So now, of course, I think we both agree that uh, most of the, what you might call bad ideas in your book, what I would call idea pathogens in mine, uh, they stem from the left because at least for, if I'll speak for myself, I inhabit the ecosystem of the university. The university is dominated by leftist professors who promulgate those idea pathogens. So the fact that I restrict my focus on leftist garbage doesn't imply that, for example, if you reject evolution because you are a conservative senator from Arkansas, if I can be, uh, you know, you know, uh, generalized, then in this case, it is the right side of the aisle that is engaging in a rejection of evidence because the amount of evidence in support of the theory of evolution is about as much as the amount of evidence in support of the theory of gravity, if not more. Uh, but when it comes, so when it comes to evolution, it's the right that's likely to reject it because it it conflicts with certain religious views. But when it comes to the rejection of evolutionary psychology, which is the the application of evolution to the study of the human mind, then it's the leftists that don't accept it. Right? There there are no innate sex differences. We're all socially constructed. You must be a Nazi, Jewish professor Gad Saad, because you are an evolutionary psychologist. How dare you say that men and women have innate differences? That's ridiculous. There is no such thing. So so I don't think that you know inherently the leftist mind is more prone to being parasitized. But when it comes to what we say about each other, to, to your original point, and, and I don't know if it was Jonathan Haidt who, who said this, but I've, I've heard it mentioned by other people, that usually when leftists attack people who are to their right, they usually attack their character. You're racist. You're a homophobe. You're, a, you're an immoral person. It's not on the data, right? I, I, I don't attack Bill Nye when he tries to link the attack in Paris, the terrorist attack, to climate change. I don't attack him as being a bigot. I just think he's an idiot who, who's not <laughs> adhering to the scientific evidence. So I am driven by data. And this is why, by the way, when you tentatively said, I don't know which side you're on, it's be- it's not because I'm coy and I don't want to tell people which side. It's because I'm an ideas man. When it comes to the death penalty or immigration, then you would think I'm about as conservative as they come. When it comes to social issues like uh, whether you, what you do in the privacy of your bedroom with another man or woman, I'm about as socially liberal as they come. So what am I? I'm a classically liberal guy in the old sense, which today would probably put me as a conservative, right? So, so I think that so I, does that does that explain uh, your your point regarding how we view each other? Yes, and you know to say that I think that's right. That okay. So if if it is true that they attack our character rather than our facts, then there really is a difference. Um, but again, I I I'm not willing to be confident that I am not making the same errors that I accuse the left of 
And so what I just ask myself all the time, what would they say about me and my blindnesses? Because I look around the world and to, I don't want to sound race obsessed here, but in this culture in America today, it is disparate impact problems of lack of racial equality that is tearing down every institution. Um, when I look around, to me, it is it is so patent that what is driving the lack of ultimate reaching a goal of complete racial equality, racial proportionality everywhere is the massive academic skills gap, is the massive behavior gap when it comes to crime, when it comes to out of wedlock childbearing. How can anybody deny that the crime rates are 13 times higher when the bodies speak for themselves? The death rate is 13 times higher for blacks compared to whites. Why? Because the homicide rate is 13 times higher. But what would a leftist say about me? They would say, how can you be so blind to structural inequality or racism and the lack of opportunity and the fact that these kids are growing up in neighborhoods that, uh, you know, they're not going to ski trips in Gestad or something, or their schools are inferior, even though their schools are being funded at three times the rate of suburban schools. Um, so they would still, I think, point to things that just don't count in my worldview. Uh, so I, but, I don't know, no, but, no. I, that, but as, 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 even as I try to be a relativist towards my own version of truth, I absolutely act with confidence that I know the truth. And the opposite, I would flip, you know, my deconstructionist professors, Paul DeMond and Jacques Derrida, who uh -oh. insisted that, that language never had a stable meaning. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is no such thing as the human self, that we are just a trope of, of language. They would write a contract and enforce it and, you know, believe that there was stable meaning. So people can hold beliefs that, that simply don't accord with the way they, they act in uh, their day-to-day -day lives. I think that if, if, they, if the left were using, quote, the epistemology of science to make a, take a position against you, uh, they, I mean, they would violate the scientific method in the same way that the Hebrew university student violated the tenets of hypothesis testing and the scientific method in that if you show them, well, here is the black on black crime versus uh, white on black crime or cop on black crime, they would say that those manifestations are themselves a demonstration of white supremacy. So to your point, when you said you don't have good schools, right? Why are blacks killing each other? It's because they, they, you know, there's intergenerational trauma that is now embedded in them through a Lamarckian process of evolution, right? So, th so there's always a quote explanation, really in quotes, right. that yeah. justifies their position. There's, you're impenetrable to data, right? This is why I can't show you data that shows that women are flourishing while men are are flan, uh, you know, failing in in universities because that you're impervious to any. So, so this is why I refer to the epistemology of the left. The progressive epistemology is in itself anti-scientific, and it's no surprise that postmodernism is the epitome of anti-science, right? I'll, I'll tell you a quick story that maybe some of my viewers are fed up of hearing, but you probably haven't heard it. Maybe some viewers haven't heard it. I once had a conversation in 2002 with a, a graduate student who was studying, uh, this is a woman who was studying uh, 
postmodernism, cultural anthropology, and uh, uh, women's studies, which I call the holy trinity of bullshit. Uh, and, and so uh, we had gone out to dinner, uh, myself, my wife, uh, my doctoral student who had just defended his, his dissertation, and she was his date for the evening. Prior to, the, prior to us going out, he comes to see me and says, um, I mean, not, he calls me and says, look, uh, this, is what, this is the background of this woman, meaning let's, let's try to have a good conversation. Don't, don't, go, don't go ballistic on her. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry. I'm going to be on my best behavior, which, oh, of co- yeah. which of course was a complete lie. And <laughs> so about halfway through the evening, I turned to her and I said, oh, I hear you're a postmodernist. Uh, she says, yes. I said, so there are no universal truths, right? Of course, other than the one universal truth that there are no universal truths. She says, yes. I said, okay, well, do you mind if I maybe take a shot at giving you some, what I consider to be human universals or universals in general, and then you can correct me in terms of how I've erred? She goes, go for it. I said, is it not a human universal that within Homo sapiens, only women bear children? This is before the whole transgender craze. This is 2002, right? So it's right. Uh, she looks at me, she goes, no, it's not true. I said, it is not true that only women bear children. She goes, no. I said, explain, can you explain it to me? She goes, yes, there is a tribe, a Japanese tribe off some island in Japan, whereby in their folkloric realm, it is the men who bear children. So by you restricting the conversation to the biological realm, that's how you keep us barefoot and and pregnant. So after I recovered from the mini stroke I had at, at that level of stupidity, I then turned to her. I said, OK, well, maybe I shouldn't give you an example that is so controversial and so corrosive as only women bear children. Let's take a less uh, injurious example. Uh, is it not the case that from anywhere on Earth, uh, sailors have since time immemorial relied on the fact that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west? And here she went using your your heroes, uh, Jacques Derrida's, uh, I'm being facetious when I say hero, uh, Jacques Derrida's deconstructionism. She said, what do you mean by East and West? And what do you mean by the sun? That which you call the sun, I might call dancing hyena, literally her words. I said, well, fine. The dancing hyena rises in the East and the West and, and, and sets in the West. She said, I don't play those label games. So if I couldn't get this graduate student, she wasn't an escapee from a mental asylum. If I couldn't get a graduate student at a top university in Montreal to to have a shared sense of meaning that only women bear children and that there is such a thing as the sun that rises in the east and the west, that's the definition of anti-science. So how could you have the left engaging in the scientific method when half of these imbeciles have been, in, uh, you know, educated in this kind of nonsense? Boy, you know, at this point. I'm thinking this is so far beyond even worrying about the left. <laughs> I'm just I'm just asking myself how did enlightenment culture vomit itself out like this and decide to turn its back on itself. You know, I guess one of the conventional explanations would be the 20th century and the atomic bomb or or Nazi Germany and a revolt against reason. But it's it's just stunning uh, the deliberate effort to undermine those achievements of conscious reasoning that have pulled human beings out of 
what has been their millennia long experience of poverty and sickness and want and squalor. I just, it is just bizarre. And meanwhile, of course, China remains committed uh, to the scientific method and to meritocracy. Now, it probably has problems even in its STEM fields with regards to patronage and corruption and, you know, I don't, I don't know what, but I think basically it does believe that when it comes to science, there is truth, there is progress, there is building on the past and not an endless, infinite regress into uh, oppositional thinking. So it is, we are one weird culture right now, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, you, you talk in your book about, uh, in the book with uh, Victor Davis Hansen and uh, Steve Malenga, you talk about uh, the immigration crisis. And as an immigrant, as a war refugee, uh, I'm astonished at the willingness of the West to engage in a grand orgiastic, you know, suicide of, of, of everything that made millions of people like me desperate to come to Canada, to the U.S., uh, you know, and, and, and I, I wonder what you think about this, because I often tell people that some of the most vociferous defenders of the West are typically immigrants such as myself, you know, me, Ayan Hersey Ali, because we have sampled at the buffet of all possible cultures. And therefore, we know what an anomalous wonder it is to live in the West. And therefore, we don't take it for granted. And we say, hey, guys, you're giving it all away. Uh, you don't want to be living in in the utopian identity politics culture that Lebanon was. I mean, if you want a perfect society rooted in identity politics, it's called Lebanon, right? Everything is driven, is, is viewed through the prism of your religious identity. Every single interaction in society, it, whether you are prime minister or president depends on what's your religion. How many seats you get in parliament it depends on which sect you belong to. Everything is through that. Look what happened to Lebanon. Look what happened to Iraq. Look what happened to Rwanda. And yet we have one political party in the U.S., and we have a similar one in Canada, that is deciding that, yes, Lebanon is the model to emulate. Let's go there. Is there hope that, I mean, is it, I can't remember if it was Max Planck, the physicist, who said that, you know, discontinuous uh, innovations in science happen when the old guard dies off. You just kind of have to bide your time until they die off. Is that what we need to do? Wait until all the postmodernists and all those folks die out and hopefully we can start fresh? Or is there a way for us to proactively defeat them while they... I mean, Justin Trudeau is still a young guy. He could still cause a lot of trouble for the next 30 years. I don't want to wait till he's dead before I have a better Canada. What do we do, Heather? Well, all I can say is I hope that we do eventually win and that we get to write the history because this moment is so puzzling, it is so bizarre, uh, that I hope at least future generations will be from our side to be able to understand what the hell is going on. Because if the left continues winning, they won't even see this as a problem, whereas it is an absolute historical conundrum. And I don't know whether we as, as participants in this moment can have the perspective to understand what is going on uh, and I wonder whether it's just decadence that that somehow life has become too soft and and so 
we don't really want to give up on our creature comforts and of course all the climate change green stuff i'm you know to me clearly the earth is warming but and and i consider myself an environmentalism an environmentalist and a conservationist but i also recognize that all of these green measures are complete bs theater yeah. nobody gives up what he values it is a tautology you only give up what you're willing to give up all of this or you keep it but you should give it up right john Kerry? i need to get on the private jet jet i'm doing important stuff but you little rubes right. the great unwashed shut your mouth and obey right we hold on to what we believe is necessary for ourselves so nobody if you told if you told Greta Thunberg that in order to be green, she'd have to stop tweeting or she would have to be utterly silent, she would say, no, it's more valuable to do this. So nobody gives up. You know, there's all these young people with their damn water bottles, you know, drinking all this, demanding that they have water, plastic bottled water delivered to them, which is completely unnecessary, but they think it's necessary. So, um, you know, we, we, are, we are at a period of such great prosperity that maybe we think we need to create these yeah. turn on turn on our our inheritance instead because we're actually not going to give up that prosperity so instead we're we're giving up and 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 sacrificing our intellectual heritage i i just don't know it's completely bizarre i would also say you know with regards to the horrors that the West is utterly oblivious to, I would say communism is the same, totalitarianism. You know, there there we are talking about phony white supremacy when we have in our recent past Stalinism, and I'm now listening on Audible to a historical novel about the Hungarian Revolution and these police states, it's absolutely chilling. Can we be sure that we're not moving in that direction with the control of thought? and? police states taking over i don't know uh but to get back to another point you know just pushing back against the right and you're absolutely right with with evolution i would also add you know for me the election in the 2020 election was not stolen the the claim of a massive conspiracy across different states is just too fantastical to believe and i but but there too, I would say that evidence doesn't really matter uh, to those who believe in a rigged election. So, but they, they think they do have the evidence. And those of us who, you know, might criticize the narrative around uh, that election or criticize the behavior of the riders on January 6th, which I have done, even though I do not think it, it compares to the violence that has been unleashed on this country post George Floyd. Nevertheless, I think that the precedent set in January 6th, 2020, 2021, if followed, is very dangerous to our democracy. Um, those people really believe that the election was rigged. And so we're at sort of an epistemological standoff. If you believe what they believe, then their actions are are justified. justified yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's that's a tough. It's a tough nut to crack. You know, I I, I mean I I, I mean I want to discuss a few additional things that are more personal related in a second, but just to kind of close the the parenthesis on what we're talking about, I, I like to always leave off uh, these discussions on an optimistic note, and that 
while you know it truly does look dire i've been in canada now and i've also of course lived in the united states uh, we came from lebanon in the mid 70s so you know i spent you know more than 40 years now in the west and the first 11 years in in, in lebanon uh, while things are a lot worse than they've ever been in the West, I still hold on to the hope and the optimism that the great silent majority despises all these what you call bad ideas, what I would call idea pathogens. And I know this, I mean, it's not quite scientific data, but certainly many anecdotal data points makes a data set. I get thousands of emails and, and letters from people, you know, professors who are too afraid to speak out and students and parents of students and corrections officers and police officers, all of whom say, you know, we're with you. We hate this stuff. We're just afraid to speak out. So I think from a, if we actually had the exact data of how many, you know, blue haired people there are, uh, they're really a minuscule minority. I think most people are not parasitized. Now, of course, the problem is that uh, the ones who are parasitized lead the culture. It's the academics, and then right. you have the downstream effect. But, but in terms of pure numbers in the trenches, most people hate this stuff. So I think that if we, meaning whether it's you or Tucker Carlson or Joe Rogan or Gadsad or whomever is involved in the battle of ideas, if we're able to find the magic recipe of igniting what I call activating your inner honey badger. If I, if you can get people to actually find their voice, find their spine, I think we can turn this around. So I guess my next question would be for you is, is it, we just keep writing books and having podcasts and giving lectures to get people to find their courage. Is there another recipe that we can get people to find their voices? What are your thoughts? Well, yes. I mean, I think that more people do have to just say to hell with being called a racist. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm not going to be frightened. On the other hand, that's easy for me to say because I'm not in a situation, I don't think, I hope, where I'm going to get fired for speaking the truth, although there's always a line I may cross. Uh, but I, and, and while I deplore uh, those guardians of our culture, whether it's humanities professors, classics professors, museum directors, orchestra heads, who are silent before these raging mobs of ignoramuses, of utter pygmy intellects and, and, and stunted emotional adolescents who are going around tearing down the greatest works of Western civilization, classical music on the phony charge of racism, and the people that have been given the privilege of, of curating and passing on these 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 uh, traditions are silent or worse than silent they're joining the mob and 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 accusing their own patrimony that they are there to preserve of a phantom imaginary racism uh, if my job was very much uh, threatened by speaking the truth, I don't know. Would I say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose unemployment in order to defend the truth as I see it? And you know, you write the numbers may be on our side, and I, I do wonder, you know, who are, how many people are are watching you and others on the intellectual dark web? What is the numerical following of Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson, or is it a smaller number of disgruntled white males? I, I don't know. Um, but I, and I also, I'm not answering your question. Uh, to me, another question that I ask myself 
is can we turn this around without some version of white identity politics? Because I kind of think that it's going to sort of take that of white people, because I'm just going to speak very frankly here, and this may get me canceled. What we have is a discourse, at least in the United States, that is explicitly anti-white. And this makes people very uncomfortable. It's okay if I'm talking about white people in the negative uh, and, and, you know, using every opportunity to notice that a police officer is white or a, or a, a conservative politician is white, that's okay. But if I use the term white in either a ironic bracketing phrase to refer to those leftist uses of, of white or simply in a neutral way, that makes many whites very uncomfortable. But what is going on now is, is really put in its simplest terms, uh, calling of whites. And, you know, it, it comes down to, in some cases, quite literally when with our eternally reborn anti-white COVID policies that are now getting attention all over again in New York, where you have whites explicitly being put at the end of the line for treatment. But this is nothing new. In December 2020, the CDC was also uh, saying, and, and states were saying, well, we don't want to privilege the elderly, even though they're the most at risk for serious complications from COVID, because the elderly are disproportionately white. The flip side, you know, so let the let the elderly whites die. That's what's going on. And so I I ask myself whether we can get out of this without some kind of consciousness among white people to say we're sick and tired of being blamed for the world's miseries. Uh, of course, the West had a colonialist history. Of course, America had a history of the cruelest treatment of blacks, the most gratuitous nastiness up until the night through the 1960s. But every other culture has been, frankly, worse, absolutely worse. If you look at Africa today, which still has children being sacrificed in Uganda and elsewhere by witch doctors in order to protect other adults. Uh, and was participants in in slavery and and practiced internal slavery. There's nothing that the West has done that other cultures have not done at least as badly. So it is preposterous to continue blaming the West. So I, I, I ask myself whether it's going to take uh, whites saying, sorry, if every other group has ethnic identity politics, uh, we're going to sort of join the the great party here and and uh, and and assert uh, that white identity also deserves pride. I don't know. And we're saying this on the Martin Luther King's day, right? Isn't it? Isn't that today in the U.S.? Yes. Right. So, uh, boy, I wonder what he'd be thinking about all that. I mean, race based medicine. I mean, the Hippocratic oath: first, first, do no harm. 
what would Hippocrates say about the medding out of vaccine based on your dermatological original sin? I mean, it's unbelievable. Sometimes I, I wake up in, in the day and I, you know, I kind of sh shake my hands in excitement of what's coming today. And then I wonder, am I living in the real world? Am I living in a simulation? It just is difficult to believe the insanity that we're facing. And it's all of our doing, right? I mean, I mean, it's one thing when you have one set of people that decide they want something that this other set of people have, and then they conquer them. It's another thing when you open up the door and say, please come and take over. Please. It's just, it's bewildering. So I think future historians will have a lot of fun uh, analyzing uh, the current situation with the West. Yeah, but again, it depends on whose side wins. Who, who, the victors write the history, and that's why I hope that we are the victors, because even though I'll be dead by then, presumably, I still would like to know what the hell is going on. As far as your optimism about the silent majority, uh, you qualified it by saying the silent majority sort of doesn't control things. It, it, the elites control things. And I would also say we're in a race against time. Uh, the more people graduate and get vomited out by universities, the more brainwashed people there are uh, that are convinced that white racism, white misogyny is the, the, the paramount evil in all of history and is the evil today that is determinate. So I don't know. You know, corporations are going further and further west. And I'll admit, I am a, a biological pessimist. I, I can tell it is just the way I'm, I'm built. And I, I marvel at optimists. And I think you guys are absolute idiots. You know, don't you see the data around you? And, and I know it's vice versa. They say the same about me. I will just note that history is on my side since the 1960s when uh, we had the seeds of this revolt against enlightenment reason, uh, revolt against meritocracy. I don't think the, again, I, don't, I'm, I just don't know what phrase to use, but conservatives are those who believe in a due acknowledgement of beauty, of sublimity, of the fruits of Western civilization, of literature, of Mozart, of Haydn, of Bach, of Schubert, of Brahms, I don't think we've won a single battle. Uh, you know, you can say the only battle maybe is welfare reform in the 1990s in this country that said, okay, we're no, gonna, no longer going to have no strings attached handouts, and we had some minimal quid pro quo for work. But other than that, uh, yes, you know, the right has won elections, but I don't think on the cultural front, it has been one long emasculation of meritocratic standards and the ability to speak the truth about history and the accomplishments of Western civilization. Well, we'll see whether the optimists or the pessimists will win. Let's discuss a few. Do we still have a few minutes? Are you, are you still of okay? Course. Okay, great. Uh, how do you... So if I look at you... I look at Ayan Hirsi Ali, I look at Victor Davis Hansen, I look at Christopher Hitchens, very different people with different uh, genitalia to use identity politics and different skin use. But one thing that they all have in common is, you know, what I often refer to in, in, in my uh, writings and in my spoken word, they have honey badgerism, right? They're, uh, the honey badger, as you know, is a small animal that is extraordinarily fierce. 
It can withstand an attack from six adult lions, even though it is the size of a small dog. And so if I look at each of us, and, and there are many others, you know, Candace Owen. So whether you're an intellectual or not, or a professor with many titles or not, there is something that's common in all the folks who kind of, to use Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, here I stand, right? They stand up tall and they say, I'm not having it, right? And ha- therefore they're, hun- they're ideological honey badgers. Is, is this something that is, in your view, predominantly just an innate part of your personality that you can't teach? And if that's the case, in a sense, that's bad news because then we can't have seminars on Honey Badger 101 to teach people how. <laughs> but if there is an opportunity, if there's an affordance of an ability to teach that, or do you think we can teach it? Or is it you have it or you don't? Good night, everybody. What do you think? Well, I'm honored to be put in the in the uh, company of those people, uh, and I I don't think I deserve it. And again, I I have to say, I feel relatively protected. I'm not in a university, and I don't know how I would perform in a situation where either, let's say, I didn't have tenure, and I and I was would forfeit my job and my hopes for tenure if I spoke the truth or if I was in an environment where I was the ideological loner and I, I had to put up with peer pressure that would be treating me as a pariah and an outcast. I don't know how I'd perform because I'm in a think tank. Uh, I'm surrounded by people that, I work at home, but generally my milieu in New York is with other conservatives. So I don't, I'm not taking the blows that Ali takes, for instance. I would hope that I would um, nevertheless persevere if I was was in an environment that was more challenging. And all I would say is I know what does drive me, which is both rage and sorrow. Uh, I am enraged at the attack on the things which I love so much and which I value and which I'm down on my knees in gratitude for, and also sorrow to see that those things are taken down. And as far as I'm concerned, I simply cannot tolerate idiocy. See, it drives I, me crazy. Yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, you're, 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 from the little that I know of you in our personal interactions, you strike me as a very humble and modest person. So I, I don't think, I'm, I'm going to speak on your behalf. I don't think that if you were in a, in a situation where you had greater occupational hazards, that it would probably, I mean, it might modulate your, your speech a bit, but I think sort of the the, uh, the 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 incredulity that you often exhibit when you speak about these issues suggests that it's something visceral, right? That that can't you can't put a lid on it, right? The people right. who are honey badgers are just. I mean, people ask me, well, wh- why do you do what you do? I mean, you are in the in the in the den of the vipers. You're in. I mean, I'm not only am I in academia. You know, I'm at a ultra woke university and so on. Uh, now, if you're going to say, oh, yeah, but you're tenured. But you know what? Tenure didn't protect me from the 10 gazillion death threats that I had. Tenure didn't protect me when I had to go to my classes with protection. Tenure didn't protect me when I had to go with my university to file a report with the Montreal police. 
10 years didn't protect me when I would get back into the car when my wife would pick me up and I would have something akin to an anxiety attack even though I was some, I'm someone who's very cool and mellow and jovial because I said oh my god I live to 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 live another week until next week's lecture so so the idea of oh yes only the courageous ones are only the ones who are protected by tenure there are all sorts of costs that we that we bear uh, and I'm not tooting my own horn. What, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that, in other words, I'm giving you a lot more kudos than you're giving yourself, which is th there are many ways by which you could be punished other than just being fired or not. Uh, I right now live in a place that's consistently at minus 20. We spoke offline that I've always wanted to live in Southern California. I can assure you, I know, I know literally, I know the fact that there were several Southern California schools that would have been very much into me if it weren't simply that you have such a big mouth, God said, right? Yeah. So, so we all have a cross to bear in different ways. Uh, and I think what we need to, f you know, help people is navigate what is the tolerable level that you're willing to take on without being completely quiet, like somewhere between complete apathy and cowardice and reckless martyrdom is the means, mean point, right? Aristotle talked about it. I discuss it in my next book, right? Everything is an inverted U curve. Don't be too cowardly. Don't be too reckless in your bravery. Be somewhere in the middle. So maybe there is a way to try to demystify to most people. Look, don't be afraid of the Twitter mob. They, they, right. There's really very, we, we, we exaggerate how much uh, calamity can come from the blue haired people. Right? I never back down. I never apologize. I mean, I apologize when I truly have. If, if I speak curtly to my dog, I will go back and apologize to my dog because I was mean and I was impatient. So it's not that I'm beyond apologizing, but I don't apologize about things that I believe in. There is no mob in the world that will get me to do that. So is there a way that we can teach people to, to find that middle point where they get engaged? Well, again, first of all, I think you have to have a passion inside of yourself for the truth. I mean, there, you have to care very deeply about things, and maybe people don't uh, yeah. on average. You know, yes, they sort of they like the books they read, maybe, uh, but they're it it doesn't it doesn't tear at them that those authors, you know, Wordsworth or Trollope or again Mozart are being torn down. They can live with that. So, but if you do feel this passion, yes, I would say, uh, you know, we don't really know what happened. Just wait out the Twitter mob, as you say. These CEOs who at one peep uh, immediately cave. You know, I wrote recently about comparing the, uh, the reaction when the CEO of McDonald's, uh, Chris Kapinski in, in uh, Chicago, had had sent a text to the mayor of Lori Light, mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, after the seven-year-old girl Jaslyn Adams was fatally gunned down in her gangbanger father's car while they were waiting at a McDonald's drive-through, uh, gunned down by her father's gang enemies, and Kapinski set a sent a text to the mayor of Chicago referring to Jocelyn Adams and another child, this time who'd been shot by the police, but he was a, a gangbanger out at 2 a.m. with a gun who didn't put his gun down when asked by the police. Kabinci said the father, the parents of those children failed their children. 
and he and then he <laughs> presently went on to say i know you can't say this but it's true so eventually his text went public and he was of course attacked for racism uh for speaking the truth that these parents failed and i contrasted that in in this piece to the great huzzah of triumph and delight that went out with the murder indictments, manslaughter indictments of the parents of Ethan Crumbly, the white guy who committed a school shooting in Michigan maybe six weeks ago, uh, holding those parents responsible for the child shooting. I'm going to bracket whether that's a valid indictment. I would argue maybe not. But if they're responsible, uh, then I would say that the parents of inner city gangbangers uh, should equally be responsible. Uh, but Kapinski, as soon as he was attacked by the Twitter mob, sent out one apology after another to his employees, to the public, kowtowing, one diversity, throwing out diversity booty right and left. What if he had just waited it out for a week or a month? My guess is the Twitter mob turns to another hopeful, sacrificial victim. Um, well, I'll so, give you. Uh, sorry, go, finish your point. Go ahead. No, oh, no. Go ahead. Uh, look, about a month ago, I posted a uh, a tweet where I was pointing to my wife's great sensitivity and empathy, and I'll I'll explain the context. We were going to a cafe where there was clearly a barista, a new barista. We hadn't seen uh, the person before. Uh, who looked like possibly they could be transgender because they were clearly biological male, but they were kind of presenting themselves as somewhat f feminine, female. And so my wife comes back to me to tell me, you know, I, f I didn't know exactly how to address them because she was she was going to speak to their colleague to say, because they were, ha the person, the, the new barista was having a hard time with the cash register and she wanted to say, don't worry, he'll get the hang of it eventually, right? But she didn't know if she should say he or say they, and she didn't know, well, she, she, should she presume that they are transgender? So all of her, you know, uh, internal turmoil was driven by a desire to not want to offend that person. So it, so my tweet was to honor how lovely and kind my wife is. And I said, you know, she was frozen in fear. Now, of course, it doesn't literally mean she's frozen in fear. ISIS is coming after her. But she was really afraid. She didn't want to offend that person. Okay. So 26 million tweets later, I mean, literally, like you could see the number of tweet impressions for these two days started with Vin, uh, Valerie Bertinelli and all of the Taliban, the pronoun Taliban. I mean, they came after me in ways that would have sent probably a hundred men to apologize and grovel. Not only did I not apologize, I doubled down. I started mocking them. I started hiding under my table satirically to say, when we escaped the Lebanese uh, militia that were trying to decapitate us, that was nothing compared to running away from the Taliban pronoun folks. That literally blew their heads open because they're not used to coming after you in the millions and you stand up and saying, I'm going to destroy every one of you and your, your, your colleagues. So I think... There's no way, look, just like in real war, you can't win a war without courage, right? The guys who landed uh, on the Normandy beaches, they didn't, they weren't guaranteed safe passage from the German machine guns. Someone has to stand up and say, I'm, yeah. right? So the same thing with an ideological thing. You can't all be castrated fools, whether right. you're male. Or, so 
I, again, I go back to my question. I, I mean, I try to do my part, but is there a seminar, Finding Your Testicles 101, that we can teach so that people can find their voices? Because if we do that, we'll get rid of these problems by next Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, whatever happened to sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know, we've got to get back to that point. As long as, if you're not being literally thrashed and pummeled, it is just words. But again, like, if you're worried about your job, I understand that. But at some point, uh, if you care about the truth, you just have to stand up for it and, and realize that maybe other people will. If you stand up, more people will. You'll get you'll get backup, uh, but again, I I would think that you want to go to your grave knowing that the things that you cared for and believed in, you were you didn't stand passively by and watch them being torn down. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know. And the, the issue of courage, of course, it's weird because in one sense, I guess what's going on sort of is that we've become so nice but we're not i mean your wife doesn't want to offend people we want to be tolerant and yet the response from the left is the absence of tolerance or niceness so it's a it's a weird culture but we certainly lack courage and and uh, you know i would say we're also lacking manly virtues you know that's what's going on with the COVID hysteria and the risk aversion uh, I wonder, would we ever be able to do Normandy again if we were to fight a hot war? When I see these perfectly healthy young 20-year-olds double masked with M95s outside where there is literally no outdoor transmission, uh, I'm not sure uh, yeah. the, you know, if, if our testo testosterone and testicle replacement surgery will ever work yeah. uh, because males have been completely emasculated and turned into cringing female wannabes at this at this point in our culture you know i receive often well not not too often but certainly in the order of you know maybe 20 emails a year of the following type some woman writes to me from somewhere lamenting the fact that she can't find the man because all of the qualities that she finds desirable in men she can't find them in any man so for example she wants to be approached and seduced but most guys are too afraid to approach because because approaching a woman and giving her a compliment is a is compliment rape it's a form of verbal rape right so so you have a sexually reproducing species where you're expected to have certain dynamics between men and women, right? I mean, all of Italy would be one crime zone if attempting to approach women seductively is considered <laughs> verbal rape. Then all of Italy is just one gigantic rape, right? So, so you know, and as, a, as an evolutionist who studies mating behavior, I sometimes, I mean, laugh with, with I mean, not with glee, but I, I find it incredible that here we are, I mean, look, uh, there are a lot of writings, as you know, whereby people, so queer studies and so on, where heterosexuality is an imposed norm, whereas homosexuality is the default value. We're a sexually <laughs> reproducing species. It's not imposed heterosexuality. So, I mean, when you're at that level of insanity, maybe I need to come on your side and the pessimist side rather than my side. <laughs> I just, it's just amazing to me. It is utterly amazing. Like 
These are so prof such profound questions and such profound developments. What is going on with our species? And I would say that, you know, China is in one sense the solution, but it's not. You know, I I have embraced from early on, along with Brendan O'Neill, who is early sort of saw this too, the safetyist, feminized ethos of the West and the decadence. And you know, to me, COVID. Is, is the triumph of the university therapeutic ideal uh, that is, is the, the risk-averse feminist female way of approaching the world. But then I look at China, which has a literal zero COVID policy, where they're, not, they're shutting down cities of 5 million people because they have 100 Omicron cases, which are Omicron is the solution. Omicron is is the thing we should all be welcoming and say, please come into my house, Omicron, and, and infect me because it's our, 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 our very mild way to herd immunity. But if China is shutting things down far more than we are, and China, I don't think yet, is a feminist culture, then there's something that is happening globally that is very perverse uh, with our ethics. Now, China probably still has a great will to live and, and, and civilizational, uh, uh, you know, agenda and, and aggression, but, but nevertheless, uh, there is, a, I, I used the word decadence before. It just strikes me as something decadent about our culture where we have so conquered the traditional sources of, of want and deprivation and, and, are, are living surrounded by such abundance, such material prosperity, that we've decided to engage in these bizarre forms of, of suicide. I, I don't know. So I'm glad I'm glad you're joining me in the pessimist side until you can, <laughs> until you can really, really uh, provide me with a reason to believe that the silent majority is going to stand up and, 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 and throw the... Uh, throw the idiots out where they deserve to be. Got you. Last two questions. Uh, question one. Uh, my former professor at uh, Cornell, a, uh, when I was a doctoral student, is a, uh, one of the pioneers of the study of psychology of regret. His name is Thomas Gilovich, and he uh, differentiates between two sources of regret, uh, regret due to actions versus regret due to inaction. So, uh, regret due to action. Uh, you know, I, I regret that I cheated on my wife and it led to our divorce. Uh, regret due to inaction. I regret that I never pursued uh, my interests in painting rather than become an accountant. And for most people, the and the reason why this is so uh, prevalent in my head right now is because in my next book, I have a chapter on regret. I talk about ataraxia, which is what the Greeks talked about, tranquility of mind. And so regret is something that removes that tranquility because you're consumed by, by feelings of regret. And so having said all that, uh, so, by, so uh, the, number, the, the number one regret that people have is typically one of inaction rather than one of action. So having, having set, set up the whole question for you, if I were to ask you, forgive the personal question, uh, is there one, two, three regrets that you currently feel looking back at your life would you care to share any of them with us well my life uh, i that's too too long standing and my memory is too poor but i'll tell you it, 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 this is fascinating distinction and, and a very meaningful one 
And it is most definitely, and you say that most people re regret the inactions that are very large. You know, they didn't learn Greek or they didn't go on that, that tour or whatever. And it may be that I'm not self-conscious enough to be bludgeoning myself for things that I did do. But I would say I'm right now, as a matter of fact, this is going to sound so trivial compared to your question and, and, and its um, examples. But and you brought up Tucker Carlson at the beginning. I, I recently did a, a hit with him on um, Omicron and I had worked out possibly three things to say about how the media keeps hysteria going. And uh, I got through the first two. And the, the third one that I wanted to bring up was the usual sleight of hand of, of conflating uh, deaths with COVID, with deaths from COVID right. or hospitalizations with COVID, with hospitalizations from COVID. But at the time, I you don't know, you know, on TV, you don't know, are you ex overstaying your welcome? How quickly should you turn it back to the host? So you're making these mental calculations second by second, how much longer to go through. And I decided not to bring up that third point. And I have since been, and this was just, I think, last week, I have been racked with regret not to put it out there. <laughs> That's your biggest regret in life? What? That's yeah, your biggest regret? It's the only one I'm thinking about. Well, not, you know what? I'm you... not going back and, and worrying about what I didn't do. It, uh, if, in, um... if your biggest regret in life is what you failed to mention yes. on Tucker Carlson, then you you have reached the state of ataraxia. <laughs> okay, okay. You want a bigger? You want something bigger? Uh, I regret. I mean, this this is a little bit too personal. I regret that I became anorexic, frankly. Okay, I regret that. That had that had major consequences. But to be honest, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the past. Okay. I really don't. That's 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 a that's a good uh, trajectory to being happy in a sense, right? Because you don't question that which you can't alter at this point. I mean, I guess in my book, I do talk about the importance of you know being in touch with your regretful feelings because sometimes we think that. We regret something because we think that the ship has passed, whereas in reality, there is still quite a time window to redress that regret, right? So, for, so I give the example of arguably the oldest PhD recipient of all time who actually happened to be from my university. I, I tell that story in my next book. So he was a guy who ran away from Germany. He was a J Jewish gentleman who ran away with his family prior to the Nazis coming to power. I think it was maybe around the early 30s. Uh, and uh, around the time they came to power, I think it was 1933, and uh, he moved to Canada. He had a whole career. He was successful. And then in his 60s, he retired, regretting the fact that he had never gone to university. And so he enrolled for a bachelor's degree in his 60s. He enrolled in a master's degree in his 70s, and he graduated with his PhD at the age of 91 or 92, Heather. So here's a guy who could have easily in his 60s thought, you know, I'm in the third chapter of my life. I'm, I've re I'm retired. That ship has passed me by. I'm going to have to live with that regret forevermore. Well, he did something about that regret. And he and, and I remember the, the, the title of the newspaper article, the, the, the university newspaper was finally a doctor at 91 or 92 or whatever it was. So 
I think there is an adaptive functional value to at least being attuned with some of your regrets because some of these we could change them so it's not only about don't obsess about the past does that make sense well yeah and i would also say right there's there are regrets that you can change and those you can't if you you know you ask you you said you're asking personal questions so if i'm thinking about it more uh i would say again i don't i'm not sure this is appropriate for a public broadcast but i do regret uh the way my mother died you know, and and I I think I could have done things differently there. Maybe not. Other people don't fault me for it. But but those things are things you cannot change. Yeah. So I would say. So in a know, sense, it protects you to not think back of them, because since you can't change them, then to regret would be just to feel pain that you can't address. Yeah. And I've I've I felt a lot of pain for a while. I'm less so now. But I would say, you know, as a cautionary note for people, uh, if you're facing sort of parents, you know, dying and, and mortality, uh, be careful there. But I guess I feel like for, for the rest of my life, I've been very privileged. I've, I've had so many opportunities for education, which is the thing that I value the most, um, that I've, I really can't say that there were things I didn't do. And I would say generally the things apart from things like, you know, were you, loving enough or giving enough it's things that you didn't say that you knew you could have said or should have said and holding your tongue that you didn't do that's what eats away at me on the other hand one can imagine the opposite things that you said that you shouldn't have said right. and and so it's a hard i don't think there's any clear rule between discretion and realizing that maybe saying something isn't going to help versus getting something off your chest and standing for the truth to hell with the for the truth no matter what the consequences are so everything is context specific gotcha. um, well thank you for sharing the the personal anecdote uh last question is there anything that you're currently working on that you'd like to use this platform i'm certainly i don't have the platform of tucker carlson but i can reach some people is there any is there anything that you'd like to promote this is your chance to do it take it away heather oh huge platform well i will have a book coming out on on the uh, pernicious effects of disparate impact but that's probably not going to be out until next year but please do look for it uh and and um and you know the it if if we don't if we don't have a better answer to the argument about disparate impact everything is coming down. Everything in our civilization is coming down under the phony charges of racism, and we better be ready to, to have different explanations for racial inequality than racism. So that's just, that's out there. Uh, what I'm working on right now is, is a piece on the Metropolitan Museum of Art and, and two contrasting shows, and the more I think about it, it is appalling. The Met, uh, this will probably come out in City Jill. They have an exhibit up right now called the African origin of civilization that is sheer revisionist history. It is, it is really extraordinary how the Metropolitan Museum, I've got a piece coming out on the Art Institute of Chicago, have betrayed their missions in order to re reinvent themselves as anti-racist institutions. So it's a, it's a case study in the, uh, the sickness and the duplicity that is taking over institution after institution in our culture today. 
Wow, I look forward to those two articles. Uh, they're in the same article, the Art Institute? No, and the-, the Art Institute one is, is in the galleys. It's coming out in print. And the Metropolitan Museum of Art, I started out writing it as an internet, a, a box that would accompany the Art Institute. But the more I look into this and read like what they've written about these two exhibits, it is so <laughs> it is so bad. It is so extraordinary they are telling lies about the history of Western civilization. I mean, virtual lies about art history. It, it may deserve a, a full-length article on its own. So, Wow. Look forward to that. Uh, such a delight to meet you. We'll say goodbye offline. Guys, if, you're, if you like this chat and all the other stuff that I do on my show, please consider supporting me in some explicit way. Thank you so much, Heather. You are more delightful than I imagined you would be. And, I, and you were already at a high bar. So thank wow. you for exceeding it. Uh, stay on the line. Thank you so much for coming on, Heather. Cheers. You're a great host. Thank you so much, God. It's been a, uh, really uh, bent my mind to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Cheers.